Welcome to the 164th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Anne Charnock, author of A Calculated Life. The novel A Calculated Life was nominated for the Philip K. Dick Award 2013. Stay tuned for my interview with Anne Charnock. The Reading and Writing Podcast is sponsored by the book-loving nerds at Riffle. Riffle is an online book community that connects readers with authors and books that they'll love. Readers use Riffle to find the next book that they want to read. And authors use Riffle to make their books stand out and drive sales. Join the Riffle community today at rifflebooks.com. That's R-I-F-F-L-E-B-O-O-K-S dot com. And look for the link in the show notes as well. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Anne Charnock, author of A Calculated Life, a new science fiction novel. Anne, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks, Jeff. Thanks uh, for inviting me. Sure. Well, can I have you read the first couple of pages from your novel, A Calculated Life? Okay, then. Um, uh, there's no chapter heading, so I'll just go straight into it. Chapter one. The second smallest stick insect lay askew and lifeless on the trails of ivy. Jaina lifted the mesh cover, nudged the foliage with her middle finger, and the corpse dropped to the cage floor. It made no sense. The smallest of the brood, the outlier, should have died first. Why this one, the second smallest? She glanced at the temperature monitor. Surely it wasn't her fault. And it couldn't be the food. She turned over a leaf. Or they would all be ill by now. So what exactly? The surviving insects shuddered indifferently. Jaina placed the cover back on its base. One thing was certain. An autopsy was out of the question. She had no scalpels. In any case, she thought, it was a fact. In the normal run of things, people had autopsies. Insects did not. She pushed her hand through her hair. One dead stick insect, and now she was running two minutes late for breakfast. That's all the death amounted to, a slight delay in her morning routine. The death would remain a mystery, no ripple of concern, no cascade of grief. She peered into the cage at the still smallest stick insect. Maybe you're just lucky, she murmured. Jaina left rest station C7 with her friend Julie, and together they headed towards the tower blocks of downtown Manchester. They looked like schoolgirls holding their packed lunches and wearing identi identical office garb. Why would the smallest, feeblest one survive longer, said Jaina. Was it feeble? Perhaps it was just small, said Julie. By the time they reached the Vimptoe sculpture on Granby Row, Jane had scanned through the data she'd compiled over the past three months on the eating habits of her stick insects, their rates of growth, their response to stimuli, light, heat and touch, morning and evening activity rates, 13 variables in all. She plotted against time, overlaid the graphs and compared. No help at all. 
I kept a close eye on them all, but I only took measurements for, for two, the two closest to average size, said Jaina. Hmm, mistake. The morning street projections let rip with the usual inducements, half-price breakfast deals, lunchtime soup and sushi specials. Julie peeled off northwards. Jane, still perplexed, pressed ahead and pulled up 16 data sets culled over recent weeks from a slew of enthusiast forums and from academic studies by the Bangalore Environmental Research Institute. Rates of growth, population size, mortality figures, it was all there. She plotted the longevity of stick insects against their size at death and regressed the data. The correlation with size was, heck, weaker than she'd imagined. She tripped on a raised paving flag. And as for luck, she thought, the tiniest survivor in mind. That was, without doubt, a dumbed-down term referring to randomness. On entering the high atrium of the Grace Hopper building, she walked under the turquoise leave palms and bit her lip. She pushed the Bangalore data from her mind and considered her Monday schedule. As she stepped to the back of the elevator, the doors closed with a whoosh jang, and she tapped the back of her head against the elevator panel. Time to think straight. How should she handle her entrance? Act as though nothing had happened on Friday? Walk straight past Eloise? Or should she apologise without any delay? It was just too awkward and confusing. She hoped Eloise had calmed down over the weekend. According to Benjamin, it, it was a simple misjudgment. A minor faux pas, his exact words. The elevator doors opened and she stepped out. She was relieved Benjamin had said minor. A bit of a faux pas would be worse, definitely. Pushing open the office door, she came to a decision. She would keep quiet, hope for the best. Okay. Great. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about A Calculated Life yet, how would you describe the novel? Um... Well, it's, it's firmly uh, within science fiction because it's set late in the 21st century. So, uh, um, you know, that's definitely uh, the genre that it, it falls in. Although I know uh, writers such as uh, Margaret Outwood prefer to refer to uh, speculative fiction, but um, I'm happy with it being labelled as science fiction. Sure. And and can you give people a sense of, of the plot or, or, you know, a sense of what the novel is about? All right. Um, um, I'll have to be careful not to give spoilers, but oh, of um, course, of we've course. said that, you know. Um, as I say, it's set late in the 21st century. And um, thanks to advances in genetic engineering, uh, society is quite different to today's. Um People don't suffer from addictions anymore, so there's no addiction to drugs, gambling. And on the face of it, um, I'm building a world where everyone seems to have a fairly good deal. So on the one hand, you have intelligent professionals living in some opulence in the city centre and the suburbs, while the menial workers and middle-grade workers live outside 
be cities in enclaves. And though they're really drab and um, overcrowded, they have a reasonable deal because everything's subsidised, uh, they have free transport, and there are some opportunities to earn a bit of extra money. So within that setting, I introduce my main character, who's a young woman called Jaina, and she's a genius. And she works as a, a mathematical modeler, working for a corporation that predicts economic and social trends. Um, and from the opening that I was just reading there, from the opening, um, I think the reader gets the idea that Jane is starting to make mistakes, that, or at least she's, she starts being surprised by events. You know, why did that second smallest insect die? before the smallest one. Um, and she decides fairly early in the novel that for all her brain power, what she actually is short of is intuition. And she puts this down to the fact that she lives a very controlled life, quite strictly set out to a very tight routine. And, and she decides to start shifting her routine and start taking small risks. And then little by little, those risks expand and get her into uh, a deeper risk-taking um, so that we reach a point where really her be behaviour becomes quite transgressive. So through the novel, I'm really following Jane on this journey um, from someone who's really very accepting of her place in the world. And she's almost an innocent. And I follow her as she becomes a lot more questioning. And she starts grasping opportunities and she ends up getting embroiled in financial fraud. She starts having relationships that she's not supposed to have. And all the time she's trying to find out um, what it is to be normal. So that's, that's basically what the story is about. It's this journey around standing very close to Jane and she makes this um, huge transition. Sure. Do you, do you remember if there was a specific idea or moment that led you to writing uh, A Calculated Life, or was it more of an organic process of trying to discover what the novel was going to be about? Um, it came about in, in rather an odd way, really, because uh, the, the idea came to me when I was actually studying fine art, and a lot of my art practice was trying to answer, answer the question what is it to be human? And I decided eventually that, um, although I was finding ways to say it through art, that it might be interesting to try and answer that question through fiction. So I, st I started uh, writing some short stories. And A Calculated Life started out as a short story. And qu quite soon after I got into it, I thought, Actually, this could be much longer than a short story. It could even be a novella. And then, and then I thought, no, actually, it could actually be a, no a novel. So it was very much trying to take that idea of what is it to be human. And um, it grew out of my art practice rather than from any writing I've done. That, that's interesting. So, so uh, what medium of art were you, were you working in? Um, Basically anything and everything. I did it. 
I did initially start out as a painter, but by the time I got to my master's, I was really um, um, just using whatever medium suited uh, the idea behind the work. So, for example, on that idea of what is it to be human, I started doing some drawings where I, I set out um, a set of rules over what the drawing should be, uh, what the sh shapes of these little entities that I was drawing and how they would move across the paper. So I kind of gave myself a really strict set of rules as though you could give that to a computer and it would, and it would perform it perfectly. But I found that making that drawing as a, as a human being, I, st I couldn't stick to the rules. You know, I kept changing because I, I thought it would look better. Or um, So in a way, that kind of work um, was me trying to act as a machine, but, but realising that um, I would always fail. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I know that I know that before uh, your your fine art career, you started out writing journalism and you worked as a foreign correspondent. How did when you start writing fiction, how did that compare to your nonfiction writing? Oh, it's just completely different. You know, I might as well have been a plumber as a foreign <laughs> correspondent, really. Um, I mean, what what you do get from journalism is being able to write very tight because, you know, you're trying to squeeze everything into a few column inches or whatever, you know, however, however you've been commissioned. Um, the only problem is I, it took me so long to get around to writing fiction because I just felt I couldn't write enough words. You know, that discipline of writing really tight, I just didn't think I could make that transition to writing fiction. So when I actually sat down and did it, I, it was just amazing. I just couldn't believe, you know, you could just make it all up. You didn't have to fact check. You could, there was no looking for quotes. You just had dialogue and made it up. It was, uh, it was fantastic. That's great. Well, I know you've written a number of blog articles and you've reviewed other novels. What, what have you been reading lately that excites you and that you would recommend? Um, well, I did read all the shortlist for the Arthur C. Clarke Award. Now, that's a UK science fiction award. I don't know if you're, you're familiar with it, Jeff. Yes, I am. Okay. So I read all that shortlist, and um, it, I, I enjoyed all of them, really. But I, I particularly liked Chris Beckett's Dark Eden, which did win. And that was a funny one for me to to really recommend I actually did stick my neck out and say I thought Chris Beckett uh, could win it uh, it's unusual for me because it's set on another planet and normally I prefer to read science fiction that's based here on earth mm -hmm. it's something that's straight dystopia uh, um, so it was um, it did tempt me having having uh, read that book to uh, have a go at something like that myself, maybe in the future. But the, yeah, all, all the shortlists were pretty good, but Dark Eden, I thought, um, stood out for me. That's great. Well, well, I know that you originally self-published A Calculated Life. What, what was the self-publishing process like for you? Oh, it was pretty horrendous, really, in terms of uh, the amount of time it took up because, you know, I wanted to do it properly. You know, I didn't just want to push this book out and have it looking a mess. You know, I wanted it to be nicely formatted. And it was um, it was tough. 
it was a tough journey, really. But um, I mean, the reason I did it was that I I did try to get a literary agent, um, and although I got you know quite quite positive, well, I did. I got positive feedback, but nobody would actually offer me representation. So I thought, well, what do I do? Do I stick this manuscript in a drawer and forget about it? and start another book, or do I actually self-publish? And at the time, well, my son works in, in uh, web, web development, and he was really keen for me to self-publish. And in the end, I, uh, I said I'd do it, rather than, rather than just have the book um, never get out there. Sure, sure. So did you, did you have someone design the cover for you, or did you do that um, yourself? Well, an artist friend of mine who who had a, has a lot of experience in the past doing book uh, book covers for for some of the big six publishing houses. I knew him through my art studies, and um, his name was Mac, is Mac Manning. And um, I asked Mac if he had any ideas, if he had anything in his portfolio, and he came up with a a photograph that I thought was just perfect. So. Um, um, between Mac and myself, we, we, we put the cover together. That's great. Well, well, given your success with a calculated life and uh, with your earlier nonfiction writing, what, what advice do you have for aspiring writers who may be listening? Oh, you mean who haven't found an agent? Exactly. Who, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, my advice really has to be to get the book as good as you can, to get the manuscript as good as you possibly can. I mean, I know it sounds obvious, but I think um, you really do need to get some, you really do need to get some critical input. And if you're the kind of person who can't take criticism, I think it's going to be difficult because I think you need to get, you need to get an idea of uh, what's working and what's not working in your manuscript at a you know re reasonably early stage. You know, say after the first to second full draft. I think um, if you can afford to get some professional editing um, done, I'm not talking about proofreading. I mean, someone who will look at the uh, structure of the story, look at um, the character development. If you've got any bad habits in your writing style. Um, I think if you can't afford to do that, then get involved in a writer's group, something I've never done. But um, I think that kind of critical input's really, really uh, very important. That's great. So are, are you working on another novel now? Well, I ought to be. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but in fact, I'm, I'm, I'm in the middle of writing um, a collection of short stories. I know traditionally short stories are difficult to get published, but I think things are changing, especially with um, the advent of self-publishing. And as you know, I'm, I'm published at the moment by 47 North, which is part of Amazon Publishing. And they have quite an experimental um, approach now, I feel, in that they're, they're not frightened off by um, short novels, novellas, um, and maybe they'll be interested in a short story collection. I don't know, but, but certainly it's what I want to do at the moment. I want to try a, a few different ideas. Sure, sure. Well, where can people find you online? Um, well, online I have my website and blog, which is www.anchanuk.com, 
and I'm on Twitter, which is at Anne Sharnock. Um, so, yeah, I think through those two routes, it's probably the best way to hook um, up with me. Great. And I'll have links to those in the show notes as well so people can take a look at them. Well, again, we've been speaking with Anne Charnock, author of A Calculated Life, a new science fiction novel. The book and ebook is available now, so grab a copy. And Anne, thanks for doing this interview. Oh, it's been great. Thanks very much, Jeff. I've really enjoyed it. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com.